Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's sad because this team that you grew up idolizing and wanting to work for, it's part of your dream job. And to have that kind of crush and know that it's actually not a dream job. It's a nightmare job. It's a position that I would never want someone to be put in. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. This week, the NFL team without a name for the last two seasons finally announced that they would no longer just be the Washington football team. They're now the Washington Commanders. After decades of using what many believe to be a racially insensitive name and branding, the change marks a fresh start for one of the marquee franchises in all of sports. But as the team finally formally closes the chapter on one unsavory part of its past, another continues to linger unresolved and largely unexposed. Hidden away at NFL headquarters in New York are the results of a sprawling investigation into the Washington franchise and its alleged long-standing culture of misogyny and sexual misconduct. Investigators hired by the league interviewed more than 150 sources and collected untold stacks of documents and emails. But the details of what they found have been kept under lock and key. Now on The Real Sports Podcast, you'll hear those details, many of them for the first time, from a number of the sources interviewed for that secret report, as well as one who refused to participate, convinced that the league would only cover up the findings. The story they tell is one that the National Football League would prefer you never hear, a story about what happens when a flood of alleged sexual misconduct runs rampant through an NFL franchise, what becomes of the women who suffer inside that organization, and how such accusations can stay in the darkness for years on end. And with that, let me introduce the reporter of this story, Katie Malone. Katie is a producer here at Real Sports and has been working on this project now for many months, conducting dozens of interviews with a wide range of sources, many of whom you'll hear from momentarily. Katie, welcome. Thanks for having me, Max. Katie, what prompted you to look into this story? Well, as you alluded to, Max, there's so much we don't know about this investigation. And The Washington Post started to do some reporting about two years ago that really piqued our interest. You know, then this fall, there's this email leak, emails that John Gruden had sent, the coach of the Raiders, that included sexist and racist language. And it just made us want to learn more. I mean, th- these were just a couple emails in a trove of 650,000 that that investigators collected. And it just seemed like there was a lot hidden, and we wanted to know what NFL investigators had found out about this team. Well, let's dive into what you found in the course of your reporting. One note before we start, some of the people who spoke with Real Sports did so on the condition of anonymity. And so in a few cases, we'll alter their voices and names. Now, here's part one of Katie's report focused on the breadth and nature of sexual misconduct within the Washington football team. 
I just, I felt like a piece of meat and I constantly felt like I had eyes on me. This is a woman we'll call Alexis. She's never spoken publicly before, but is doing so now, she says, to lift the lid on the abusive and toxic environment she says she endured for multiple years while working in the corporate offices of the Washington football team. Like the time she says she received sexually suggestive text messages from a team executive. One of the staff members texted me saying, nice shirt. And I kind of replied with, okay, um, what's the joke? And he replied, sorry, it's an inside joke, but it's a compliment. It's nothing stupid. You look great today, that's all. And he then says, it's no offense, sorry, but real or fake is the debate. So basically their department was having a debate on if my breasts were real or fake. I wanted to be taken seriously. And that's another point of when I realized they're not, they're not viewing me as a professional in the sports industry. They're viewing me as eye candy and a joke. It wasn't just Alexis. Dozens of former employees, both male and female, told us that women were routinely objectified by executives at the company. Executives like Mitch Gershman, the team's former chief operating officer. Mitch would literally look us women up and down and tell us to go to the bathroom and and clean the mess out, fluff the hair, you know, prop the boobs out, whatever it was, put on more lipstick. Denise is another former employee of the Washington football team. She's one of several women who told us that while working for the team, their appearance was regularly scrutinized, particularly by Gershman. He would always say, a little higher, a little lower, pointing to our skirt and our shirt. A little higher for the skirt, a little lower for the shirt. He used to tell some women, you got to drop 50 pounds. No one's going to want to look at you. Don't wear that skirt. That is gross. He used to say exactly that type of thing verbatim. And, you know, as I think about it, those women, they did. They sat in corners. They sat away from all the doors, away from the windows. That's really disgusting as I think about it that way. Denise says inside the organization, women were commonly discussed in graphic sexual terms, often right in front of them like the comment she heard one male team executive make to another as they left her company. I can't wait to stuff my face in that pussy. And he, that happened more than once, um, where he would say vulgar things like that with all of us, you know, intending all of us to hear or not caring if we heard. Denise says that as she tried to rise up in the ranks of the organization, she felt executives only valued her for her sex appeal, not her actual skills, and that she was shocked one day when one executive stated it explicitly. And there was a time where I was told I wasn't a team player because I wouldn't sleep with someone to get, you know, contracts signed. So that was your boss telling you you weren't a team player because you didn't want to sleep with somebody to get more business for the team? Yep, because I would not sleep with someone to get a contract signed for the team. And former employees say it wasn't just the Washington executives who openly harassed women in the workplace. It was the players, too, as illustrated by this alleged encounter that Denise has never shared publicly before. So I'm sitting at my desk and this player just walks up and says whatever he says. And he drops his shorts and his complete he is completely naked, just exposed and basically inviting me to take part right there 
in broad daylight in the middle of the office, in the middle of the workday, and no one around said anything. No one thinks anything of it. He laughs. He walks back to practice or back to meetings, wherever he went. And he is married. It's just normal. And then he did it to at least one other woman. That other woman turned out to be Denise's friend, Beth, who, too, says she was blindsided by that same player. He he whipped out his penis briefly and then covered it back up like a joke. He He was making it seem like it was a joke. I'm someone that when I'm uncomfortable, I laugh. So for me, I, I laughed it off and, and didn't address it any further. Women were disposable to that team. We were shiny objects that, you know, would come in and then come out. Um, you know, I had a player tell me that I had DSL, which I didn't realize what that meant at the time, but it ended up being that that reference, dick sucking lips. And so, you know, it's just sense of shock. And and you really don't know what to do. While many women we spoke to say both male executives and players operated in a lawless culture without restriction, the women themselves say they had to abide by a very simple golden rule. When it came to matters of actual football, women were to steer clear. It's a lesson Alexis learned when she asked about working in football operations. And when I inquired on breaking into the football side of things, I was told that I could not work in the scouting department. And I know I've also been told by former colleagues that had similar experiences that were told, oh no, women can't work in football operations because we're a distraction. And so I just don't feel like they take females seriously in the workplace there and that it's a fraternity there. And how did that affect you and how has that affected you? Th- that crushed me. I mean, that really, I felt like I had hit a ceiling with where I was and I didn't feel like there was any room for growth at that point. It was kind of like, well, where do I go from here? I'm now back with Katie Malone. Katie, you obviously heard from these women a great deal of angst and frustration. Once they realized what this workplace was all about, why didn't they just quit? Well, first of all, these women needed their jobs. I mean, these salaries were not high. You know, they were, in in a lot of cases, some of these women were making $30,000 a year. um, And they didn't have other jobs lined up so they could just, you know, quit on a dime. Some of the women also told me that they you know, they weren't quitters. You know, this was their career dream. This was their aspiration to work in the NFL, to rise in the ranks of of the sports world. And, you know, they felt like if they could just get through it and just endure it, that there would be the payoff of, you know, a promotion or another job down the line. Well, as we'll hear in the next portion of your reporting, Katie, former employees told you that when they sought solutions or looked for recourse internally, they often found little support in large part, they say, because the culture of harassment extended to the very top of the organization, giving women the sense that they had nowhere to turn. I definitely didn't feel comfortable turning it into HR at all. I mean, that just seemed out of the question. Why is that? There's no secrets in the building. If someone did try to report something to HR, that it, it got out somehow. Like it, it wasn't kept confidential. And so I didn't want to experience that. I just, I felt like if I went to HR, I feared consequences such as, you know, retribution, retaliation. 
According to one former insider, Alexis and the rest of her colleagues had reason to worry. And it tended to go that if someone got upset enough and went in and kind of had that long closed door meeting with with the HR person, they usually were gone within a, a fairly short amount of time. We'll call this man Jake, a former team employee who asked that we change his name and voice because he too fears retribution for speaking out. If you put something on the record that was about someone higher than you in the organization, then there's a very real chance that you aren't going to work there anymore. Jake recalls a particular instance when a member of his own department went to HR to raise concerns. I'm aware that one person who worked under me did go to HR with complaints of general abuse, and that was less sexual and more to do with just it being a toxic work environment. I don't know what happened to those reports, but I do know that by the time uh, the next week rolled around that she was no longer working for the team. Worried about reporting misconduct to HR, another former team employee, Rachel Engelson, chose a different path. Engelson says that after she both suffered and witnessed abuse in the workplace, she brought complaints to the team's executives. But as she explained to us, those complaints, too, went nowhere. To how many officials did you report harassment or misconduct at the Washington football team, would you say? At least six people, if not more. And would you describe all these six people as executives? That's only counting people who are at a vice president level or above. And in the end, what happened to these reports you made? Nothing. Nothing happened. At the end of the day, the company did absolutely zero to protect me and numerous, numerous amounts of my colleagues. Some former employees have told Real Sports that sounding the alarm on internal harassment was an exercise in futility in part because they felt the man at the helm of the organization, owner Daniel Snyder, was already well aware of the team's culture, as Denise says she witnessed on one occasion in the owner's box at FedEx Field. Mr. Snyder was sitting there, a couple of others, one of my friends. She went to pick up something that he had dropped, and uh, one of, I can't even say the word gentleman, one of the guys sitting there groped her butt as she went to pick it up innocently. And Snyder chuckled and took a puff of his cigar. And then then probably seven minutes later, another man, you know, brushed his arm against my breast. And a few minutes later, another man said, hey, meet me in this suite back here in the corner. The examples are just, they're endless. And, And that's in Snyder's, that's in the owner's suite. That's Snyder's right there. It's happening. And some say Snyder was not just an enabler of the culture, but a participant in it. He was once accused by a former team cheerleader of suggesting that she go up to his friend's hotel room to, quote, get to know him better. Snyder has denied this incident ever happened, but another former team cheerleader told us that Snyder made repeated and unwelcomed advances towards her. Dan Snyder is an awful human being. Awful. Tiffany Mattingly Johnston was a Washington football team cheerleader for six years, and after her cheering days were over, she served as a team marketing executive for another six. Until now, she's never told the story you're about to hear. Johnston says Daniel Snyder not only verbally abused his employees in her presence, but in one instance, inappropriately touched her at a team dinner. I was strategically placed right next to Dan Snyder. Anyway, I was eating dinner, having conversations. All of a sudden, Dan Snyder's leg, or hand is on my, on my leg. And it was one of those moments where 
as I'm trying to maintain a conversation, I just think to myself, okay, you can kind of make a big deal of this and make a scene, or you can silently just move his hand from your leg. And so that's what I decided to do. I literally put my hand on his hand, put it back over towards him, and then continued on with my conversation. And, and he said nothing, I said nothing. After the dinner ended, Johnston says, she thought she was in the clear, but then Snyder approached her again. Dan comes up behind me and puts his arm around my back and he's like, oh, hey, um, why don't you just get in my limo and then I'll take you back to your car. He's pushing me towards his limo and he kept pushing it, kept pushing it. And I just remember his attorney at the time walks up to him and says, Dan, Dan, very, very bad idea. And I mean, bad idea. When he was distracted looking at the lawyer, I kind of got from out of Dan Snyder's arm and went over to the other sidewalk or went beyond his limo and and hailed a cab because in my head, I'm thinking he truly believes I'm going to get in this limo and do God knows what with him. Around the time of the Johnston incident, another disturbing situation was allegedly unfolding at the team's headquarters. Tom Kercheval was a freelance video editor for the Washington football team. One night when he came into the office, he was shocked to see images of a topless woman on one of the computer monitors. So the first thing that I asked was, what am I looking at? What is, what is this? And the person who was editing that said, these are outtakes from the recent cheerleader video shoot. And we were asked to put this together for the owner. When he said this, he said it in kind of hushed tones. I could tell that it wasn't something he was thrilled about and wasn't something that he probably necessarily wanted me to have seen. What were the kinds of shots that comprised this video? There were many really tight, zoomed-in shots on body parts. But the, the thing that really set these videos apart were those moments where the women were caught in various stages of undress. They, they may have had a prop that they were using in the, in the final version of the photo, but a woman holding two footballs over her breasts. But when that, when that was actually happening, when it was being shot, there may have been a time where she had the, the footballs and she lowered her arms and revealed herself for whatever purpose or for whatever reason. And those were the moments that were put together and that were searched out to, to put into these videos. And it, it was it was clearly, you know, put together for a lascivious purpose. Kershaval says he's speaking out because he wants the Washington franchise held accountable for its corporate culture. I couldn't believe that this would be happening at an NFL team right on their premises, right in their in the area that they were creating things. I just think it's it's despicable all around. So, Katie, I know some of these accusations are being made publicly for the first time, but how has Daniel Snyder responded to similar allegations in the past? In terms of the videos, Snyder has said, quote, I did not request their creation and, and I never saw them. In terms of the other employees' claims, Snyder has acknowledged that, quote, the culture was not what it should be. And he also pledged to make changes at the organization. But he has also denied that he himself did anything wrong or that he ever sexually harassed anyone. 
Well, Snyder's response notwithstanding, stories about the culture inside the Washington football team eventually reach a sort of critical mass in 2020. Uh, The Washington Post published a series of reports, and eventually the NFL takes action. A very prominent attorney, Beth Wilkinson, is brought in to investigate by the NFL. Katie, how did the men and women you've spoken to react when Wilkinson was tasked with this investigation? I think there was a general sense that there was relief that this very prominent and well-respected attorney was going to be undertaking this investigation. She was an attorney of some note in that she represented Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings. But she she had a reputation for being tough but fair. She's a former federal prosecutor. Um, and I think there was a sense that, you know, finally somebody was going to get to the bottom of things. Well, as we're about to hear in part three of the report, Katie, with such high hopes for Wilkinson's investigation, many of the women you spoke to did line up to participate and then waited anxiously for the probe to reach its conclusion. I did have confidence in Beth Wilkinson and her team that it was the right thing to do, that I should share my stories, that I should share you know, what I went through there. What did you expect would come out of that? I expected that there would be a report. I expected that there would be more transparency and that potentially more accountability. That's Melanie Coburn, a former cheerleader and cheerleading executive for the Washington franchise. She says that having witnessed what she calls the team's toxic and abusive culture for 14 years, she decided to trust in the process and joined more than 150 former Washington employees who were ultimately interviewed by Beth Wilkinson's team at the behest of the NFL. But Coburn came to regret that decision once the investigation wrapped up. Now to some breaking news in the NFL. The NFL is fining the Washington football team $10 million after a sexual misconduct investigation. Because beyond a $10 million fine for the franchise and a determination that the team's workplace was, quote, toxic, the NFL provided little information on its findings other than a perfunctory press release. I was sobbing. My husband was like, he thought someone died. I, I just felt gut punched. Coburn says that she expected that the NFL would release the findings of its investigation in thorough detail, just as the league had regularly done in the wake of scandals before. The league had published a 96-page report on the Ray Rice domestic violence incident, a 144-page report on bullying by player Richie Incognito, and a 243-page report on the so-called Deflategate scandal. The deflated balls of Deflategate got 243 pages, and we get zero. And there was over 120 people that participated in that investigation. These are human beings, and we got nothing. It, It was terrible. Coburn and many others who were interviewed for the report believe that the NFL is trying to shield one of its marquee teams and perhaps officials from across the league from embarrassment and a full accounting of what went on at the team. But Commissioner Roger Goodell insists that the league is simply trying to protect the witnesses themselves. Some did not want to be public. Some wanted to. They're welcome to be public if they wish to. But we want to make sure we're protecting the people who came forward but to relive those experiences. But former employees like Alexis, Beth, Jake, and Denise, who all participated in the investigation anonymously, say they want their testimony out for the world to see. Of course we want it to be public. That's the entire point. Why would we want this done and then just 
<laughs> not even gone to print. We want this to be made public so that something can then be done fairly and justly with it. Frankly, we've been used as the excuse as to why they're not releasing information. So it's really troubling and it really makes you wonder how corrupt is the situation and what was actually shared for the investigation. That's Megan Imbert, a former production manager for the Washington football team. She, too, provided some information to investigators anonymously and is now among the contingent of these frustrated former employees trying to publicly pressure the league into releasing the report. We're not going to be silenced. We're not going to stop until the Bethel Wilkinson report is released. They've got a petition online with more than 40,000 signatures showed up uninvited at the NFL owners meetings in October. I don't think any real progress can happen until there's transparency. And in November, took their protest to a Monday night football tailgate at Washington's FedEx field. Hi, how are you? Where Imbert and Coburn walked through a parking lot full of tailgaters seeking fan support for their movement. Are you all familiar with the investigation into the team culture? No. Not at all. We would love for you to sign the petition. If it's nothing to hide, then why not release it? I want to know, because I want to know what, what I'm supporting. And if it's something that's bad, I'm like, I need to take my money elsewhere. I feel like we need more fans like you helping educate the other fans, too. I think what a lot of fans forget when they see us speaking out against the team and speaking out against Dan Snyder is that we were fans first, especially me. It was my childhood dream to be a Redskinette. And I can't, I can't watch the NFL. I can't support the NFL the way I used to, knowing that they buried this report and that they are allowing this to happen. So, Katie, while the NFL has issued its fine to the Washington football organization and seemingly considers this a closed matter. Congress has now gotten involved. How did the U.S. government come to take an interest? And what's the latest on that front? So essentially, the Gruden emails really captured the, I think, the nation's consciousness and these legislators' consciousness. Um, You know, just the fact that there were 650,000 emails that Beth Wilkinson's team obtained from the Washington football team. And, you know, we, we got an insight into just a smattering of them, but but I think the the question remained: What more is there? What other kinds of inappropriate behaviors and comments are being made at this franchise? And so these members of Congress have really pushed for accountability. They've they've requested cooperation from the NFL in seeking more information about what was found during this investigation. And now it's led to a roundtable discussion that is going to be happening on Thursday, February third. And certain women and men who have worked for the team will be speaking to members of Congress in this live-streamed roundtable discussion. I should note, their testimonies will not be under oath. This is not sworn testimony. The men and women who you've heard from in this piece who hope for more accountability are expecting that this roundtable discussion could lead to hearings that will allow members of Congress to subpoena witnesses, which I think they're all you know, really excited about the prospect of that because I think they think then we will finally hear the full truth about what went on at the Washington football team. Under this new pressure from Capitol Hill, has the NFL shown any inclination, Katie, to reconsider its handling of the Wilkinson report or issue any additional sort of punishment? 
They haven't. Under questioning from reporters at various press conferences where Roger Goodell has been available, has been made available to reporters, he's just repeatedly said that they can't release more information because certain women and men who participated in the investigation did so anonymously. And their identities and the information, presumably, that they provided might be too revealing and they can't, they simply can't provide the public or the people who participate in the investigation with more information. Well, Katie, terrific job with this reporting. I'm sure you'll continue to monitor what comes of these hearings in Congress, and we'll see where the story goes from here. Thanks so much, Max. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on February 22nd. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.